From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. The resolution is not adopted. The Republican effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has failed for at least now. Four Republicans and every Democrat in the U.S. House voted against impeachment. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. I'll have a first-hand account of the drama of that impeachment vote, a major loss for Speaker Mike Johnson, plus it appears the bipartisan measure in the Senate to strengthen border security is also in trouble. It's been made pretty clear to us uh, by the Speaker that it will not become law. Then a federal appeals court rejected with barbed language Donald Trump's claim he's immune from prosecution in the federal case charging him with efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Let's talk very briefly about the fact that uh, Georgia right in the center of the Biden campaign universe right now. Yesterday, as you well know, Vice President Kamala Harris was down in Savannah on her tour, a uh, nationwide tour, uh, talking about the importance of reproductive rights for women, women's right to choose, which the Biden campaign clearly thinks is going to be a huge issue in the campaign. And uh, the First Lady, Jill Biden, is in Atlanta today. She'll be, among other, place, among other places, at Morehouse School of Medicine to showcase the administration's commitment to more research and commitment to focusing on women's health issues. It, Georgia's, Georgia isn't a necessary state for Democrats to win, but it's certainly an important part of the mix, whereas Republicans probably can't win the White House without Georgia. Right. And I think, you know, it shows the significance, A, of Georgia, period, being a swing state, being a state they want to make sure it doesn't come across that the Biden administration is taking um, Georgia for granted or has forgotten about what Georgia did for him in 2020. But I also think, as you mentioned, that focused focus on women, I think Democrats know that women can swing an election. Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump in 2016, partially because women, particularly suburban white women, um, went more to Trump um, than they had in, in previous elections. Um, Biden was able to swing some of that back to his favor. Um, and so I think they're talking about these issues, health care um, in general, and then abortion specifically, Today, I think there's also going to be a focus on black women in healthcare, mm-hmm. yep. and um, so I think it's all hitting at those populations that the Biden administration wants to say make the case for why women should support him. Absolutely. Um, so we're going. Yesterday was Vice President Harris's eleventh visit to Georgia uh, this year. We're going to see her back. We're going to see. Uh, 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 the president here, Donald Trump, will be here. We're going to see a lot of action in uh, Georgia when the uh, general election campaign finally gets underway. So we'll be talking about it in the weeks and months ahead. Meanwhile, let's get right to our conversation today and introduce our two great guests. Um, um, first, Michael Thurman, 
the CEO of DeKalb County. We're also very happy uh, to welcome Anthony Michael Christ, professor of law at Georgia State University. Anthony, uh, considering we're going to talk a lot about legal issues on the show today, there's nobody we'd rather have than you here. Thanks for being with us. It's, a, it's always good to be here and uh, never a dull day in Georgia, especially when the law is concerned, right? So, uh, what are you teaching this semester, by the way? So this semester I'm teaching Constitutional Law 2, which is about the 14th Amendment, Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, and I'm also teaching Employment Discrimination Law. So it's uh, quite a quite a mix of, of, of students and different issues and uh, a lot of crossover issues, and it's it's been a good semester okay, so Okay, quickly, was the 14th Amendment already something you would have been talking about, or did you add it to your uh, a curriculum because it's such an important issue right now in terms of whether Trump— is qualified to run for president. No, the 14th Amendment is a huge part of the law school curriculum. Um, I probably have taken a little bit more of a reconstruction history approach to it than I otherwise would have, but that's consistent with my research and it works really well in the classroom. So, yeah. Okay. Um, Let me start to you by the drama that unfolded in Washington on your beat late yesterday afternoon, early in the evening. The House scheduled a vote uh, to uh, impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, and it failed. And it failed in a very dramatic fashion. Tia? So dramatic. You so were a dramatic. witness to the whole thing. Yeah, kind of. I don't want to. Um, I had a off-site event, so I witnessed it via C-SPAN. Um, uh, some of the, f- the final vote I witnessed via C-SPAN, but I was there for... The procedural vote, which, you know, Republicans, even some of the Republicans who we knew were going to vote against impeaching Mayorkas, went ahead and voted yes on the procedural vote to let it come to the floor. But where the drama was, was I think Republicans had done their whip count and they knew that they were going to lose three. And in the current um, majority with the Republicans, if all Republicans are present they can only they can't lose three without losing a vote and um, they can only lose three. Yes. And but they had an absence. Steve Scalise has cancer. He's undergoing treatment and he had let them know I'm not going to be here. So instead of only being able to lose three, they could only lose two. Right. I'm doing the math here. Stay with me. But then they found out the Democrats had an absence, too, because Representative Al Green of Texas had surgery. So he was out, which means Republicans were back to being able to lose three and still have a one vote majority. Well, guess what happens? We're voting, we're voting, we're voting. Everything's going according to what people expected. Republicans lost their three. But. They knew that with the Democrats and the Republicans each having one absence, they would still win the Mayorkas impeachment by one vote. But guess what happens? Al Green shows up in a wheelchair. He's in hospital scrubs. He's in socks with no shoes. And he gets rolled down the aisle. He casts his vote. And all of a sudden, it's a tie. And anyone who knows Robert's Rules of Order, a tie vote is a losing vote. And Republicans were shocked. They did not expect Al Green to show up. He had missed votes earlier in the day. And with that, the Mayorkas impeachment failed. Now they say, you know, Scalise will eventually be back. He's been in and out as he recovers from different rounds of treatment. So they say once Scalise is back, they'll bring it back up. But... Remember, the George Santos uh, seat special election is Tuesday. If a Democrat wins, which it's a very close contest, there's a chance a Republican will retain the seat. But if the Democrat wins, once again, those three votes, Democrats would be up. Well, there's a very important, of course, Georgia connection to all this because mm-hmm. it's Marjorie Taylor Greene who has pushed the impeachment of Mayorkas for months and months now. Um, Let's listen to quickly uh, what she had to say um, when the vote failed. His willful refusal to enforce the law has resulted in the most egregious national security crisis in the history of our country. Democrats are in a quandary. Either they must own 
the policies of murder and crime of American citizens, or they can admit Secretary Mayorkas has broken federal laws and vote to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. All right, so that was uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene right before uh, yeah. the vote. She lost mm-hmm. the effort. We've now got Michael Thurman uh, squared away, and you're with us now. Well, I do want to talk about your book. We'll do that uh, when we come back from a break for just a second and reintroduce the show, uh, Michael. But in the meantime, the, the thing about this Mayorkas uh, impeachment effort is that it's fairly well known that there's nothing that Republicans have found that make this a truly constitutionally uh, empowered uh, impeachment uh, 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 effort. Absolutely. Just kabuki theater slash politics as a way to draw additional attention to the border crisis that we are experiencing. Uh, And it's interesting. It's quite embarrassing. I think Ms. Tia Mitchell laid out uh, the facts and how it unfolded. But at the end of the day, it still was an embarrassing moment uh, for the political leadership, the Republican political leadership in the House. Um, Anthony, um, the Constitution lays out very specific reasons why a person in public office can be impeached, right? Yeah. So the the Constitution says that impeachment should be reserved for high crimes and, and misdemeanors. Um, it's a it's a big question about what that means. Uh, generally speaking, maladministration was rejected as a basis for an impeachment. And in other words, right, just a policy disagreement. At the same time, what constitutes a high crime or a misdemeanor is not defined in the Constitution. And we that's that's kind of one of those things that we have defined through tradition and history over yeah. time and refined. Um, and so, on the one hand. Most people would say this is not the kind of thing that the impeachment clause was meant for. On the other hand, impeachment uh, or matters that are impeachable are matters that are impeachable by definition because the House says they are. So yeah. so it's, it's kind of a strange element of our constitutional system. Um, Tia, a couple things about, uh, about this. Um, number one, Mike Johnson is brand new to the Speaker's chair. We knew when he went in that he was not a guy with a great deal of experience in procedures in the House and, for that matter, how to uh, how to maneuver politically. Um, they apparently didn't have a vote count before they started this vote. You can never, you can't even possibly imagine, Tia, I think, Nancy Pelosi going into a vote like this without knowing exactly what the outcome was going to be. I think they had a vote count. I think they assumed Al Green would not be there. And um, Democrats kind of outfoxed them. Um, And so their vote count was based on a faulty assumption of there being one Democrat absent. Um, But I think to your point, Bill, they still are bringing legislation to the floor on a wing and a prayer. You know, we haven't even got to the um, Israel measure that also failed. Mm-hmm. Um, the Israel funding measure failed a- after the Mayorkas impeachment failed. And and that's because they brought it to the floor knowing that they didn't have the support that they needed from Democrats because um there weren't enough Republicans willing to even support the Israel funding the way the House Republicans want to do it. And so um, it is a, a leadership in the House continues to struggle with managing their thin majority and managing the competing interests within the Republican conference. I, I, I'm glad you pointed out the vote count issue. I'm basing what uh, that on what I heard of, um, on, on various interview shows. Uh, several frustrated Republican members say they said they didn't think that the speaker had a vote count, but you probably have a better handle on that uh, than I do. Uh, Mike, you want to weigh in on this again? To add to the fact that this was orchestrated, I don't think it was happenstance or coincidence that the governors, including our own governor, ended up at the border. Uh, and, and, And to preface the vote, all of these things were supposed to segue to be a momentum and to create an embarrassing moment for President Biden, and it just didn't work out. It was a failed effort, and and sometimes politics is interesting. 
things work out the way they should, even when you don't plan for them to work out. And the Democrats, I suspect, are celebrating mightily uh, at the, in the U.S. Capitol today. Yes, but um, as, as Tia just pointed out, Anthony, there's every expectation that Scalise will be back and that Republicans will be able to vote to impeach Mayorkas, whether they have the grounds for it or not. That's absolutely correct. And of course, I think there's a slight degree of irony here, too, that part of the reason why the the calculus didn't work out in Republicans' favor is because former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy resigned. Um, And so that also is a vote that could have put this over uh, the margin and and sent it to the Senate. But the one thing I I also think it's important for us to kind of consider as astute um, observe, you know, observers of politics is that you know we often kind of the people who are inside watching these things we we think a lot about how failed votes look and you know we make a lot of them and and maybe to the average voter they don't think about failed votes as being the kind of disaster as we think about them as political analysts but it does show something about the fractured nature of the Republican Party um, and and there is a deep division within the party and there is it's a coalition that I think. Um, is really going through some some maybe growing pains, dying pains. I don't I don't know how you want to describe it, right? I mean, and of course, this is this is cyclical, right? Through the the history of American politics, the Democrat Party has done this, the Republican Party has done it before, and this is just another iteration of that cycle. But it is something to be, you know, I think to to watch and to think about. Um, Tia, you mentioned the vote on the uh, Israel funding, which failed immediately after the impeachment vote failed, um, and let's. Be clear with our listeners what one of the, why that failed in many ways. There, there are a number of reasons why it failed, but the the bill was brought up with funding solely for Israel. It was not tied also to aid for Ukraine, and that made it a non-starter certainly for uh, many Democrats on the far right. Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene voted against it because they believe that any funding for Israel should also include an offset of money taken away from the IRS, which the far right of the Republican Party believes is really getting uh, billions of dollars to go after uh, (laughs) Republicans with a lot of uh, money. So it was kind of a no-win bill, and, uh, and the president had said he would Uh, veto it anyway, because it didn't include Ukraine money. Yeah, the irony of this is what is now being discussed is putting a bill on the floor that just has aid for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan, bundles it all together, and starts in the Senate, and then goes over to the House, um, which is what President Biden asked for back in October, And at the time, Republicans said, no, we need to talk about border security. And now after, you know, months of negotiation to try to address the Republicans demands to tie the international aid to border security. Well, that was put on the floor. Republicans are saying, nope, it's a non-starter. Nope, we don't want to do border security, partially because President Donald Trump said that he didn't want them to address border security. So now we're almost back at square one. Essentially, they're going to go back to what Biden initially asked for in October. Now, whether Republicans, particularly in the House, where they control what gets to the floor, whether they'll they'll allow that to happen remains to be seen. But if anything gets done, it's going to be that, that international aid, Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, no border security. Michael, uh, this is another example of the inability, certainly of the U.S. House, although the Senate is, is uh, to some extent guilty of this as well, not to be able to pass any measures whatsoever. And now we know that the bipartisan border bill, which had been negotiated for months with uh, Democrats and Republicans, including the leadership of one of the Senate's most conservative members, Senator Langford from Oklahoma, who was behind this bill. We now have um, the, the, the House had already said this bill is dead on arrival in our chamber. The Senate was still trying to move it forward. And yet yesterday, uh, senators, a Republican senator started backing out 
Here's what uh, the minority leader Mitch McConnell said when he essentially freed his party members from supporting this bill. I want to congratulate Senator Langford on a remarkable job of negotiating with the other side, getting the support of the Border Council. But it looks to me and to most of our members as if we have no real chance here to make a law. There you go, Michael. The minority leader gives the green light for Republicans to abandon the bill. That's following direction from former President Trump, uh, who made it clear that uh, his political best interests would be in nothing uh, happening to address the crisis on the border. Uh, but I think this bill, uh, President Biden, the Democrats, irrespective of the failed legislation uh, in Congress yesterday, must become more aggressive and take a more aggressive posture on border security. Uh, whatever powers exist within the executive branch, an office of the Oval Office and president must be exercised if uh, there is any hope of a path to victory in November. Uh, Democrats in particular, and hopefully with Republican support, must take a more aggressive posture to protect the border because that is, I think, the most glaring example of failed government right now in our country, our inability to protect the border. Well, Michael Thurman, a lifelong Democratic public official, it's really important that you said that. On this show yesterday, we pointed out that certainly the White House has to take its share of responsibility over this because early on, President Biden did not focus on the border and the need to toughen measures to keep it from getting out of control. Um, and it's it's something he's picked up a little uh, uh, further down the road, and it's causing him real uh, grief right now. And you are a vo one of the many voices of Democrats who believe that was the case for a long time. Anthony, jump in. Well, I think President Biden's in a little bit of a, a bind, or would have been in a bind had this had this passed. In part because um, there's a very strong progressive element of the Democratic Democratic Party's base, which would have been incredibly opposed to this law or this proposed bill because it is incredibly conservative in nature. Um, and in fact, right, I think one of the hallmarks of our immigration policy, as I guess I'd put myself in that progressive camp, is is the right to seek asylum. And and, and so, you know, I, I was a little uneasy with it personally. Now, I think there's a lot of other people who felt that way. Um, the way in which the Republicans have reacted to this has put Joe Biden in the best possible position because, one, he can point to the Republican Party and say, hey, I would have signed this. I would have put this in the law. I would have enforced it. But you did nothing. And you are now caving to Donald Trump. He doesn't have to sign the bill, which means that he doesn't really have to defend the, the progressive and more liberal wing of the base. And he can also, um, you know, make the, you know, both congressional Republicans not just look like do nothing, right, legislators, but show that they are subservient to Donald Trump and, and Donald Trump's interests. So I think Joe Biden's kind of in the ideal situation here with this bill not making any progress. Well, yeah, but Michael, and then let's get Tia back. Michael, I, I think that what Anthony's certainly right in, in, to an extent, but the border is still in crisis and it is one of the biggest issues that vo voters are looking at, according to the polling, as they think about who they're going to vote for in November. And uh, Governor Abbott's decision, which I deplore, but to bus immigrants to Democratic jurisdictions by the tens of thousands change the calculus politically. Because now you see in Democratic mayors and other local elected officials shifting their narrative and their position on this issue as cities and counties are being overrun. Look, we can never uh, stop being a nation that opens our doors to people uh, seeking asylum. But there has to be some moderation and there has to be an effort to at least get control of who comes into the country. It's not that people should be denied who legitimately have a right or at least a need to come, but there should be control of that process. Yeah, and I think that part of the reason why Republicans were uncomfortable with doing this border security measure, which we know would have addressed 
some of the complaints they've had about the Biden administration's policies at the border is that the measure also includes a lot of funding to address what the cities and states have complained about, including Democratic leaders in places like New York City. You know, they say that they need the money to address the influx of immigrants, but it also included the work permit changes. So one of the ironies is these um, migrants show up and they're claiming asylum or whatever, and it's they're in limbo for months, if not years, until their cases can be like, adjudicated for lack of a better term, but they can't get work permits in the meantime, which makes them more reliant on public assistance because they can't legally work. So the border security measure, one of the things that was negotiated and a professor Anthony probably can explain this better than I can, but it was negotiated to help them work legally while their case is pending in the system, which is why business groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce supported the legislation. But again, you have Republicans saying now, no, we don't want to do that. But this is some of the complaints that Republicans have been holding up as, you know, Biden's failed policies. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that's important here is to distinguish the difference between people who are seeking asylum, which are people who are coming to the United States because they've been politically oppressed and they are you know, victims of violence and political oppression and the like, versus people who, who come simply for economic reasons, which is not asylum. Um, and the former category are the kinds of folks who, you know, while their processes and their issues are, are being adjudicated, don't have easy access to, to work and become dependent on on governmental resources. So it really is trying to achieve that kind of balance of, of letting those continue, but but to ease the burden on, on the government. Okay, thank you all for a, a really good way to start off the show. Shaney B. and Natalie are screaming at me in my ears saying, you are so late to get to the first break. So fine, we'll get to it right now, back with more on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut, along with my co-host, Tia Mitchell, Anthony Michael Christ, law professor at Georgia State, and the DeKalb County CEO, Michael Thurman. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. Michael, your book, James Oglethorpe, Father of Georgia, is going to be published next week. How long have you worked on the biography of Oglethorpe and why him? Only 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> why I hadn't mastered the art of deadline writing, Ms. Mitchell. <laughs> you got to teach me how to do that. Why, why uh, Oglethorpe? Oh, obviously Father of Georgia, but he... Uh, was among the first white men in North America to oppose chattel slavery. Uh, he was, as one historian described him, an imperfect critic of slavery, but he, it's his journey from having served as an executive in a slave trading firm to breathing life into the abolitionist movement that abolished slavery in England and then the United States of America. Well, we're very excited for you, those of us who have had you on uh, various political shows that uh, Natalie Mendenhall and I have worked on over the years, have followed this journey, and we're thrilled the book is finally being published uh, next week. All right. Um, Tia, yesterday a federal appeals court in Washington dealt a major blow to uh, former President Trump, who uh, argued that he was exempt. He was immune from prosecution for trying to overturn the 2020 election. And this is in the federal case we're talking about now um, because uh, the uh, president of the United States cannot be tried for actions that uh, he took during his presidency. And, and the appeals court mints no words. This is a three-judge panel of the full court. They mints no words. Let me just read one 
a paragraph from their ruling. Former President Trump's alleged conduct in trying to overturn the election conflicts with his constitutional mandate to enforce the laws governing the process of electing the new president. The criminal charges against him, if proven true, amount to an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. Whoa, Tia. (laughs) Yeah, and again, to me... I like to think about it. I know that there are supporters of former President Trump who believe that he is being, you know, persecuted for partisan reasons and to keep him, you know, to sully his reputation and keep him from becoming president again. But let's take it away from Donald Trump. Let's give it, you know, future President Joe Smith murder someone in cold blood. While he's president, should he never be prosecuted for a a crime he's accused of committing? And again, I'm not. The question is, can a president be prosecuted under any circumstances? Mm -hmm. That's what the court um, was addressing. And the court basically said it would create chaos if we say no matter what a president is accused of, If it's done while he or she is in office, regardless of whether we think it's with their official duties or not, it's 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 off. It's the courts can't touch it. And so I think, again, don't think about it as President Trump. Think about the precedent. If you say no matter what a president does, he or she could not be prosecuted for that. Anthony, and of course, the appeals court in their ruling also said he is not President Trump in this case. He is citizen Trump. That's that's right. This case fundamentally addresses what it means to be a democracy and what the rule of law in a democracy means. And, uh, you know, the court, I think, was very clear that we don't want to second guess the president all the time, particularly when the president has discretion to act within a range of different policy choices, um, because that is that's something where we don't really want the courts uh, to second guess. We don't want subsequent uh, bodies and prosecutors to to come after a president for those split second decisions. However, there are clear commands that Congress imposes on the president, on all of us, not to break certain laws. And so the president doesn't get an exemption simply because they're president from complying with the the criminal code. Similarly, and I think this is important for Georgia in particular, um, there is no role for the president, absolutely no role for the president to interfere with the counting of electoral votes and, and to intermingle um, right the office of the presidency in the verification of votes on a state level, which is, again, very important for Fulton County proceedings here because there is a motion similarly before Judge McAfee to to basically quash the entire Fulton County indictment under the theory that President Trump is immune. But I think it's really important not even to, you know, not just to acknowledge that the president has no role here in this as an official duty, um, but President Trump, when he was acting, was really acting as candidate Trump, mm-hmm. um, right? furthering a partisan personal interest and not the interest of the presidency of the United States. So um, I think the decision was very strong, but I think not only in terms of you know, moving the ball forward and, and getting a trial probably to happen before the election now in D.C., but it certainly helps move things along here in Fulton County where there's a similar parallel issue before Judge McAfee. Uh, Michael, uh, certainly the Trump uh, lawyers can appeal this to the United States Supreme Court. I think there might be some questions by the court as to whether they want to get involved in this. Uh, it, they, this is an important case, but you know the Supreme Court may feel that this is a political hot potato. We're going to have to see how they address this if the appeal comes their way. Well, that's true. And but thinking broader, uh, beyond uh, President Trump, former President Trump, uh, you saw it even with the impeachment. <laughs> Uh, process. It's become so political now. Uh, things that used to be exercised or used only in the most extreme situations have now become just political tools. And what you don't want, even with uh, beyond President Trump, is the prosecution of presidents uh, by individuals or public interest groups for any and every purpose, because it would just create chaos uh, in our nation. 
uh, irrespective of what the decision is as it relates to President Trump. Pia? Yeah, I think it's the Supreme Court, we know, has a conservative majority, but in some recent rulings on not so much policy, the Supreme Court's conservative majority has ruled in conservatives' favor on some policy issues like abortion. Um, but when it comes to kind of the Constitution and democracy, some recent Supreme Court rulings, such as like with the Texas case, for example, and whether federal law supersedes state law, the even the conservative majority has said, you know, let's not take it too far. And so it'll be interesting to see if they weigh in. Well, no, they're going to weigh in because Trump is going to ask them to weigh in. But it's going to be interesting to see how they decide to weigh in on this immunity issue. And I think they're going to address it pretty quickly. Um, I think they know it's coming to them and it shouldn't take them very long to either uphold the lower court, the you know, the appeals court and the district court's decision or say, all right, let's let's hear some arguments on this. Anthony, I have to say that having been a political reporter in the 2000 election when Bush v. Gore was decided, uh, thinking about this or the other cases that Trump has now got in the system, ending up with the Supreme Court kind of sends chills up my spine. <laughs> This is perhaps the most consequential Supreme Court term for democracy that we've had perhaps since Reconstruction. And, um, you know, tomorrow the Supreme Court will hear questions of whether Donald Trump is qualified under the 14th Amendment um, in, in the Insurrection Disqualification Clause to, to be president of the United States. There is a case that pe- that is pending before the court about whether uh, the, the law that has been used to prosecute January 6th uh, offenders is, you know, has been appropriately applied to them. This case will now be before the court. Mark Meadows, um, his appeal um, from the 11th Circuit about whether or not his case should be removed into federal court from Fulton County Superior Court for the 2020 election, uh, you know, pro- indictment is, is you know, in the mix. So there are a lot of cases that are in the works. I, I think the Supreme Court will have to somewhat pick their battles because unless the court wants to be you know, enmeshed in Donald Trump and the politics of Trump for for the next six months. Um, you know, the, they may not want one more case in that mix uh, than they than they need. So, I think yesterday's uh, opinion from the D.C. Circuit was thorough. It was uh, incredibly, you know, plain spoken, and it was, by the way, issued per curiam, right by unsigned by all three judges who have very different ideological ideological stripes. Um, Judge Henderson is is a George W. A George H. W. Bush appointee. Uh, she is not, you know, she she's not a liberal, um, you know, versus two Biden appointees who are. Uh, and so the, that I think really will speak volumes to the court. Maybe will will give the court some comfort in not taking this case up, but maybe they will. Well, you know, and Anthony, um, some of the other uh, constitutional law experts who, uh, are, you know, in, in, to some extent are colleagues of yours by, you know, in a distant way. Uh, have said that they thought that the circuit court answered this uh, question so thoroughly, uh, point by point, that there's really not a lot of room for this to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, people have been yelling at me for the past two weeks online <laughs> because I kept saying, wait, wait, it's, 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 you know, it's still being expedited. It's probably forthcoming soon. I even predicted it would come down yesterday and I was correct. Um, and so I'm going to gloat on, on radio right now. But but jokes aside, I, I think part of the reason why we wanted this decision to be so airtight um, and, and, and rock solid is because even if the Supreme Court does take it up, it makes it a lot easier for them. They have a vehicle that is already prepared and ready to go for them to just kind of put their own rhetorical flourish onto things and, and to perhaps add some things. Um, but they're not, have to, they won't have to reinvent the wheel. And so even if, even if they take this up, I think that really expedites the process in a, in a significant way. Michael, let's talk about the politics of this. Um, ju- just the fact that here's another example of Trump trying to go to court to get off the hook on something. We know he had 60-some cases uh, in in his efforts to have courts overturn the results of the 2020 election, lost every single one of them. Now he loses this one. 
regardless of what happens moving forward, if he's convicted before the election or not, to what extent do you think this sort of news has an impact on voters in Georgia, for instance? Is this this the sort of thing that Georgians voters are likely to have in their minds when they decide on the November election? Well, the polling so far uh, that I've been privy to suggests that these cases, civil and criminal, only strengthens uh, Trump's support with his base voters. And what we've seen is a core, you know, that that uh, Republicans are coalescing around him even beyond his MAGA base. So, so far is all I can talk about. I don't have a crystal ball about the future, but so far it seems to have had no impact uh, on his support uh, among Republicans and some independents. Now, they polling shows that if he is convicted of a crime, there are people who say they won't vote for him, but that has not yet been accomplished or or. or or achieve. So right now, it's not hurting Donald Trump with his base or with Republican voters that I can see. Well, but the general election will not be just about Republican voters, of course. It will be about not only, and not just Democrats, but independent voters as well. Tia, before we get to the break, Anthony made an important point. Tomorrow is a huge day uh, in front of the United States Supreme Court. They are going to look at the Colorado decision to exclude Donald Trump from their ballot on the basis of a uh, of a 19th century amendment, which says that if you've been responsible for an insurrection, you can no longer qualify for office. It's it. Anthony can argue with this, and maybe he will. But we got to get to a break in a minute. Uh, it, it's the consequences of this case are enormous. Right. And this is about whether Trump can be disqualified under the 14th Amendment, barring people who participated or aided in insurrection. So we'll see. It's a very interesting test case. Colorado is one of the few states that allowed the 14th Amendment argument to have Trump removed from the ballot. Many other states said, no, that you can't use the 14th Amendment this way. So we'll see. All right. Um, we got to get to our final break of the show. We got a lot more to talk about with this panel and with my co-host Tia Mitchell in just a moment. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This podcast is part of the mission of the AJC. We want to be the most essential and engaging source of news for the people of Atlanta, Georgia, and the South. Stay up to date every day on breaking news, in-depth investigations, politics, sports, entertainment, food and dining, and so much more by becoming a subscriber to the AJC. Go to AJC.com slash start for a special offer, which will allow you to unlock hundreds of original articles published daily at AJC.com and the new AJC mobile app. Plus, you'll have access to our news alerts, AJC films and videos, newsletters, podcasts, and so much more. That's AJC.com slash start. Anthony, you said, it's really fascinating that I asked you, what you're teaching, one of the things you're teaching is the 14th Amendment, which is a section of which is crucial to this case. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think a big part of this case uh, is is about the original intent and the original purpose behind the, the reframers of the Constitution's decision to put this in the 14th Amendment. Um, what would the radical Republicans of Reconstruction have thought about um, you know this case that that's a real that's a really important part of this and so the the, the role in which history plays um, is is particularly you know dominant you said you're gonna you're turning your class over tomorrow to your whole class getting to listen uh, to the arguments um uh, Michael there are many people on both sides of the aisle 
who really think that voters should be able to make the decision about Donald Trump, that to have a court choose not to put him on a ballot would, in fact, inflame such anger and tensions and maybe um, take away the voice of the voters. Well, I agree. And let me preface it by saying that, you know, I'm all in for Joe Biden. No, no hidden agendas here. And I do believe that Joe Biden will be reelected president in November. Uh, but I agree that voters should decide unless there is or has been a conviction uh, in a competent court of law. And I would just point out, I mentioned before that most other states have not um, accepted that 14th Amendment argument. It's been filed not just about Donald Trump, but in Georgia, um, some groups use the 14th Amendment ar argument to try to keep Marjorie Taylor Greene from getting back, as, uh, getting a second term um, as well. And courts rejected that argument. So I, I think it's a long shot for Colorado um, for the Supreme Court to uphold the argument. But at the end of the day, it's, it's just really this 14th Amendment language hasn't been tested since the Civil War, um, which is when it was first implemented and what it was initially drafted for was to keep Confederates from serving in government after after the war. So um, but I think a lot of Democrats don't see a lot of upsides to it because, again, it just feeds into Donald Trump's argument that you know, his enemies are trying to keep him from becoming president and it's all politically motivated. Democrats are like what Michael Thurman, who knows he, he's he got the talking points. He's got them down pat. You know, Democrats <laughs> are like, we want to we want to beat Donald Trump at the ballot box. We don't need the courts to remove him. We can beat him with him on the ballot. So I think it's important that we're very clear about what happened in the wake of the Civil War, which was there were no widespread prosecutions or criminal convictions for anybody for their participation in the Civil War. In fact, one of the very few convictions was of Henry Wirtz for his involvement in the Andersonville prison camp here in Georgia. Um, he was one of the few people who, who was convicted for his war crimes. Jefferson Davis uh, was not tried in part because the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was you know, un, under you know, in, impermissibly involved in the defense of the the case that he was supposed to be overseeing. So, uh, you know, nobody would have doubted that those people, notwithstanding not having a criminal conviction um, in 1868, would have been barred until the Amnesty Act in the 1870s was passed. So, I think that's the first thing that I want to make very clear that a conviction has never been required and is not part of the constitutional text. But the other thing that I think is important for us to understand and to think about is that the Constitution has rules. We are not a pure democracy in the sense that nobody can just run for president. You have to have it, you know, be 35. You have to be a naturally born citizen of the United States. No, you know, people, um, you know, just can't run for Senate. There are requirements for that as well. And in a constitutional democracy, there are lessons that we should learn from the people of, of Reconstruction, which is when you let people who engage in a rebellion and insurrection have a free hand in the democratic process, it'll come back to bite you. I think we would really regret if we look back in the 1860s, um, you know, the folks who framed the Constitution in the 14th Amendment would have been very displeased with the way in which Reconstruction ended, in large part because we let ex-Confederates get away with a lot and we allowed them too much participation in the democratic but, process. But that sounds like an argument for the, your belief that the court absolutely has a right to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot. Absolutely. I mean, the Constitution means something. We have the rule of law. Democracy and democracy requires the rule of law. And if we just ignore certain rules because it's inconvenient for us, I mean, I think it's much easier for Joe Biden to defeat Donald Trump than it is Nikki Haley, for example. So I don't think it's necessarily in the Democratic Party's, you know, advantage or to their advantage to have Donald Trump removed. But at the same time, the law is what the law is. The Constitution says what the Constitution says. Anthony, while the ball's in your court and we are running a little short of time, I'd love to get your thoughts first and then turn to the others. Um, we now have at least four defendants in the RICO case here in Georgia who want to disqualify Fonnie Willis, mostly because of her romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor. Uh, but also there's there's a new, the filing from Steve Sadow 
uh, Trump's attorney, um, is all about the fact that she made comments at Big Bethel AME Church in which she said it was racist, that it was racists who were after her in all of this. And their argument is she's trying to taint the jury pool. Is any of this going to get very far? No. Um, and, and, large, large, and largely, um, you know, we have an elected system or we have a system in Georgia where we elect our DAs. And so they're going to make political statements. Um, and, and so long as I think they're, they're kind of vague generalities and they're not directly right related to a particular defendant making a particular claim in order to taint the pool, I, I think that this claim is, is really just, it's just not going to go anywhere. Judge McAfee's going to hear this case uh, next week. 15th. Uh, um, uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, all of that aside, the legalities aside, your take on Fonnie Willis being putting herself in this situation uh, i can't speak to that but what i will speak to well, sure you I, can. You know, <laughs> no i don't know funny i hadn't talked to her about this uh, <laughs> we don't know how much of any of it is true or not true but what i can say is this to only look at whether it's uh the 14th amendment or the now the the uh crisis around the prosecution in Fulton County and not view it through a political lens is naive because most of this is not really about legal theory or law. It's about politics right. and whether or not a political agenda is being achieved or not. All right, Tia, real quick, Mike, I get Michael. He's, you know, being careful, but come on. Yeah. He I knows he, whether he thinks it's appropriate for Willis. And I mean, at the end of the day, again, take Fonnie Willis out of it. You've got a prosecutor who hired someone on a high profile case, paid them a lot of money and come to find out they're dating each other. Don't the optics look bad, CEO Thurman? Well, that's not the question whether they look bad or not. Well, here's why it's a question. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but we're out of time because let's assume that she gets a conviction in this case. There is always going to be hanging over her among people who are Trump supporters this sense that she has acted inappropriately, that this was a political prosecution, another example of Donald Trump being persecuted. You've got about 30 seconds on that. Yeah, but that was the narrative even before this. And that will be the narrative whether this existed or not. It's the politics of the moment. And we can't separate the politics from these legal processes that are playing out all over the country. All right. Um, Anthony Michael Christ, Tia Mitchell, Michael Thurman, what's the date of your book release, Michael? February the 15th. Woo, February 15th. Thank you all so much for today's uh, really terrific conversation. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.